What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, an Omicron vaccine ready in March, this March. Pfizer's CEO with that news and all his hopes for a healthier 2022. The hope is that we will achieve something that will have way, way better protection, particularly against infections. I don't know if we will need it. I don't know if and how it will be used, but we'll be ready. And Wall Street's top regulator, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, wants to increase transparency. Our whole system of finance comes down to one basic word, and it's called trust. How do we get the best trust so companies can raise money efficiently and investors can, quote, trust the market? Plus, COVID policy around the world, courtside at the Australian Open, and an Omicron surge in China. Is the Olympics take over? Does the zero tolerance policy take over? Because the Olympics are pretty important for China, too. It's Monday, January 10th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, goodbye, in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew ross and Joe is off today. As we head into a new trading week, as we head into a new uh, week with potentially this new sort of combo variant we should talk about, because new over the weekend, a researcher in Cyprus now reportedly discovered a strain of the coronavirus that combines the Delta and Omicron uh, variants together. Now, the researchers and his team have now found they're calling 25 cases of what they're calling Delta-Cron. It combines Omicron, like the genetic signatures, within the Delta genomes. It's not yet clear whether this strain is more deadly or contagious than the individual strains alone. But, you know, every time you wake up in the morning and there's a new, quote-unquote, strain, there was a a different variant that we had heard about about a week and a half ago. I think we just talked to Scott Gottlieb about it uh, that had been discovered in France. Um... I don't think people are worried about that particular variant. Hopefully they won't have to worry about this particular variant. But um, there, obviously the Omicron variant was something we did have to worry about. So uh, we're happy. Yeah, you know, I, I wondered, I was thinking about it. If you're if you're looking at this new variant, it depends on which characteristics it takes from each one of those variants. If it if it takes um, a, a less aggressive form in terms of how quickly it, uh, it um, transmits to other people, because that's the problem with Omicron, is it, it's so incredibly contagious. If this were to be less contagious, let's say like a Delta, which was more contagious than the original strain, but still continue to be milder in terms of the effects that it has on most people, that would be great news. If it, if it did the opposite, it'd be bad news, you know, if it was more deadly right. and more highly contagious. So right. uh, big questions about what this might mean. And there's some officials who are still questioning whether this is even the case, but then I, I think if you look at the science on it, it showed up in some other countries too. Uh, so Delta Crom, we'll see. A, a big question is, you, you know that this is going to continue to uh, mutate and to kind of evolve and change with time. That's what we've seen time and time again. Don't know exactly what it's going to mean until we get more data. 
In China, officials are racing to contain a COVID outbreak there as well. Residents in the key port city of Tianjin, which is 30 minutes outside the capital of Beijing, are facing new restrictions as authorities try to stop a new Omicron outbreak that could further disrupt the global supply chain. Those new measures being implemented just weeks before the Winter Olympics kick off. And Andrew, this is another big question, too. If you have the Chinese zero tolerance policy bumping into the start of the right. Olympics, which one kind of wins out? Is the Olympics take over? Does the zero policy, zero uh, um, zero tolerance policy take over um, because the Olympics are pretty important for China, too. Meanwhile, let's tell everyone uh, another story that's happened now overnight. Uh, this one on Australia. Tennis star uh, Novak, uh, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, has won his court battle in Australia. This after his visa had been canceled because of his vaccination status. We told you that part of the story last week. A federal judge there, though, made a ruling in an emergency virtual court hearing today, uh, meaning that uh, his visa now remains valid. He's going to be released from detention and given back his passport and belongings. The government acknowledged it did not give him and his team sufficient time to react after informing him of his cancellation. But the saga is not over because Australia's immigration minister can still personally step in if, if they so, so choose and cancel the visa. And there's a lot of pressure there for him to do that. So uh, as many in Australia have been bristled at the idea of a millionaire tennis player being able to flout their country's rules. So uh, the, the judge effectively determining he's being un treated unfairly, uh, but effectively throwing it back, it seems like, uh, to this minister to make a decision um, about the visa itself. The judge himself was pretty heated up about this. He said he would be very upset if the minister did overturn his decision. But there's so many facts that are still kind of floating around with this. The reason this all started to begin with is that Djokovic actually tweeted about how he was coming into Australia. And, and that's the reason they kind of started looking at these visas right. that had been granted. He said he had gotten an, um, an emergency um, extension from that visa and was given the right to not have to follow the rules to, or to not be vaccinated. I think there were questions because he has said that he tested positive on December 16th. There were rules there that said you had to turn in your application for this emergency visa or for the rules getting around being vaccinated by December 10th. There were also pictures of him on December right. 17th and 18th unmasked with children in one case um, and other people who were all right around him at that time. So there were some huge questions around it. But the judge in this case said he was treated unfairly because they took his phone away and wouldn't allow him to speak with his legal team. So I think you have a question of a, a couple of issues that are coming at play here and, and we'll see um, what happens next. Next on Squawk Pod, vaccine distribution lopsided around the world. Some are experimenting with a fourth booster. Some are still without any protection at all. CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, on the global state of affairs. All the efforts should be right now from WHO, but also from us, we should help on that. Everybody should help on that. It is to build the infrastructure in the low-income countries so that they can absorb more vaccines. And also the campaigns, that will convince the population. That extended interview right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. The annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference begins today. It's the industry's largest healthcare investment symposium, and it will be virtual once again this year because of concerns about that Omicron variant. Meg Terrell joins us right now with a special guest ahead of the conference kickoff. Meg, good morning. Good morning, Becky. That's Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer. Albert, Thanks for being with us this morning. You know, seeing the news out from Pfizer today, you're announcing a trio of deals uh, really focusing on mRNA. Uh, Of course, you also expanded your relationship with BioNTech, focusing on a shingles vaccine last week. So tell us about this strategy for Pfizer in expanding in messenger RNA and how much of a driver of your business going forward you expect that to be? Well, I think it's going to be a driver of finding solutions to unmet medical needs. And we have a very strong belief that mRNA is a very powerful technology. All we do, it is trying to harness this uh, technology for, for, for the best of uh, mankind. Um, this is very strategically selected, all these uh, agreements. As you have seen, one hand, we are expanding even further our collaboration with BioNTech. This is a collaboration that I wish I had many like that. They are uh, fantastic partners, both in the scientific and on the personal level. Now we are going with a third. Uh, target. We believe uh, that was very carefully selected. We believe that has very high probabilities of delivering a solution to an unmet need, not because the current Zoster vaccines are not effective, but they are don't have the safety profile that we hope we can achieve with uh, this technology. But it is not only the infectious diseases that uh, matter. There are other applications that they can help. So there are three more deals that we have announced. Uh, a very important one with the beam uh, beam is a is a leader in the base gene editing technology we I, we did a lot of due diligence and we believe that uh, the base technology is the technology that uh, has the most promise in gene editing and right now we have partnered with them to deliver three targets uh, uh, of significant importance in, in liver in uh, in the nervous system and uh, also, we did two platform uh, deals, technologies. One is with Acuitas. Uh, Acuitas is providing its license for 10 targets in a very basic technology. It is the LMP technology. This is the uh, lipid nanoparticles technology. It is an essential part of everything you do with mRNA right now. And that gives us a tremendous independence. And uh, I wouldn't underestimate also the agreement that we did with Codex. Codex. Uh, has a technology that uh, you can produce DNA not through biological means, which is how we do it right now when we are working, for example, with uh, our vaccines against COVID, but with chemical, enzymatic. Um, This means that you can uh, reduce the time 
of producing a very essential part of the overall manufacturing process for RNA vaccines from almost a month to a couple of days. Um, that could cut dramatically, potentially, even further, our ability to have new variant vaccines if needed, instead of three months into two. Uh, that will produce, let's say, dramatic benefits uh, for, for, for our fight against COVID and other diseases like flu, for example, because that will allow you to be very, very close to the time that the new variants are circulating. Wow. I mean, that would be a, a massive change. You know, you mentioned BioNTech being a great partner, and we've obviously seen that uh, throughout the world through this pandemic. Is there ever a time when Pfizer would buy BioNTech? No, of course, we wouldn't even speculate in something like that. We wouldn't even comment on something like that. But uh, right now, our relations with BioNTech are uh, uh, perfect. Well, let's talk about the product, the first product of that relationship, of course, the vaccine. Uh, what is your expectation uh, in terms of, you know, whether we're going to see an update to that vaccine? We just spoke with Stefan Bansell from Moderna, who suggested really the focus is on the fall for figuring out the right strains for then. But of course, we're already seeing Israel giving forth booster doses. We're working very actively on an Omicron-specific uh, vaccine as a booster. Uh, that should be in the clinic very soon. And we are discussing with public health leaders around the world to decide what do we think is the best strategy for a potential booster for the fall of 2022. We believe it will contain Omicron um, mRNAs, uh, but do we need to add any other components? That has to be discussed because we need to be careful to try to stay ahead of a virus. What do you think the future holds uh, in terms of when we'll be getting the next boosters and what those boosters are going to contain? I wouldn't say that the future is clearly predictable right now, but what I think it is that uh, we are doing everything we can so that we can stay ahead of, of the virus. And uh, let me start with, I don't know if there is a need for a fourth booster. That's something that uh, needs to be tested. And I know that Israel already started some of these experiments and we will conduct also some of these experiments to make sure that if needed, we use it. I don't think we should do anything that is not needed. Also, we are working on a new version of our vaccine, a version that will be effective against Omicron as well. It's not that it will not be effective against the other variants, but against Omicron as well. And um, the hope is that we will achieve something that will have way, way better uh, protection, particularly against infections, because the protection against the hospitalizations and the severe diseases it is, it is uh, reasonable right now with the current vaccines, as long as you are having, let's say, the third um, dose. This vaccine will be ready in uh, March. Uh, I don't know if we will need it. I don't know if and how it will be used, but will be ready. And in fact, we already starting manufacturing some of these quantities at risk. So if there is a need for that vaccine, that we will have some uh, immediately because there are a lot of uh, governors that would like to see it immediately. And clearly, uh, also the pill, right? Right now, this is where most of the effort of most of the governments is, is moving. Uh, when I see from uh, uh, the mobility of our, of our antiviral, um, they are all placing orders and some of them, uh, they are discussing right now about stockpiling. And um, we're waiting uh, eagerly to see the results from the countries that already is uh, uh, circulating in real world data. Uh, we have the U.S., we have Israel, we have other places that's already there. 
Mm, well, let's talk about that pill, Paxlovid. Of course, this is a hope of so many people amid what we're going through right now with Omicron. But here in the U.S., and I imagine it's the same in every country, constraint, there's the supply is really constrained. Uh, expected to be about 265,000 courses in the U.S. by the end of January, 10 million by the end of June. What can you tell us about the cadence of the delivery between now and the summertime for getting those more doses in the U.S.? Yeah, it's going to go exponentially up month after month. So it's not going to be just 10% or 20% the month after. It's going to be two, three times, and then we're going to go again two, three times, et cetera, et cetera. We should be having, you spoke about uh, 200 something thousands in, in, uh, in, in January, we should be having at least 6 millions uh, by March. And then we are going really, really big. We should be having uh, other 24 uh, millions in the next quarter. So 30 all the way to half the year. And right now we are already at 120 capacity, but because there are discussions about stockpiling, we are trying to understand uh, if and how we could uh, scale up even even more. Albert, I'm I'm curious um, how you think about the given the number of breakthrough cases that we're seeing with Omicron. Whether you think that that's going to suppress the public's appetite longer term for boosters over time. I think this is a, a real risk because, you know, there is always the, the element of uh, people could get tired. But um, I believe that um, uh, this situation has unfortunately, not fortunately, but unfortunately, a form to camps, to different mindsets. There is a mindset that they are very fanatic, that uh, they are uh, don't want vaccine. And there's a mindset of other people that they want maximum protection. So I believe in the element of, of, in this segment of the people that they do believe in the value of the vaccine, the people that uh, they want maximum protection, I think they will follow at large the instructions of, of uh, the healthcare authorities and their physician. The other camp, which is uh, the ones that they are very skeptical, I think they will remain skeptical. And for them, I think, unfortunately, the solution only will be the pill if they get diseased. And then there is in between which is the, the, the number of people, uh, which is smaller the segment, that um, it can, can go one way or another. And this is where education uh, needs to help. You, you just mentioned the pill, and I think there are people who may be vaccine skeptical, let's call them, who may start to think to themselves, this therapeutic will be available. The question, and it goes back to where Meg was going with this, is how quickly can you scale? And can you scale up? You're talking about 20 million, pill, uh, 20 million doses could you scale up to hundreds of millions of doses in this calendar year? Just to clarify something, we are not speaking about doses, right? We are speaking about courses of treatment. Uh, when we spoke about 120 million uh, courses, this is 3.6 billion tablets, right? Because these are 30 tablets per, 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 per treatment. It is three tablets day, um, day night, and uh, for five days. So it is already very high, but we are uh, looking at uh, opportunities and it is feasible if there is a need to scale up more. It just, you need to make the decisions early because scale up will take, let's say six, seven months. Albert, I think that gets at the heart of the problem we keep running into with this. And that is nobody knows where this is going. You said yourself at the top of this, it's hard to predict what happens next with these variants, where things go how things develop. Um, 
But if you're not prepared, if you don't have situations like we've just gotten caught in the United States without having enough testing at this point, I mean, Abbott Labs was in a position where people weren't buying their tests, so they weren't producing as much. A lot of these tests don't have a long enough shelf life. They haven't been approved by the FDA for a long enough shelf life for them to stick around for long enough for us to be able to effectively stockpile these things. My question is, what what are you getting in terms of your workings with the U.S. government at this point that is helpful or not helpful in terms of being able to provide for things we may need come fall of 2022? How do we prevent ourselves from being in another position where we could have done things, we could have had enough, had we thought ahead and planned for enough contingencies? Where are we in a good shape on this and where are we not? I think it is a very good old saying that you you regret for things that you didn't do more than for things that you did. And I think that's very high in the minds, not only of the US government, of many governments, and uh, uh, they are um, really uh, the discussions about stockpiling has to do with that. That better if we have some stocks available, so that will provide us independence and will provide us um, uh, certainty. Uh, and eventually, those stocks will be absorbed because the the, the, life, the self life of the pill will be, uh, let's say, many years. I think I believe at the end. Um, so, yes, there is a lot of thinking. I can't speak about neither the U.S. nor any other government, but all of them, uh, they are on, on this mindset right now, how to build an inventory, which is a life-saving inventory. Well, Albert, uh, sort of on the same theme that Becky was just asking about, you know, one of the things one could envision us going through in the fall is a new variant, which would just be awful. But experts say if this keeps spreading to the degree it is around the world, it's almost inevitable. You know, the WHO has that goal of 70% of the world getting vaccinated by July. Do you think that is a goal that is likely to be achieved? Um, we know the supply is getting better. Do you expect those to actually be able to get delivered? And is there a chance we can vaccinate enough people and control this well enough that we don't see new variants emerge this year? will be challenging, not because of vaccine availability, um, as you just mentioned, we already have more vaccines than uh, uh, people will eventually need right now. And particularly in uh, the low-income countries, uh, they have more than they can absorb right now. I think all the efforts should be right now from WHO, but also from us, we should help on that. Everybody should help on that. It is to build the infrastructure in the low-income countries so that they can absorb more vaccines. And also the campaigns that will convince the population. You know, the vaccines, uh, vaccine hesitancy, uh, it is very different country by country and society by society, right? We have examples like Scandinavian countries, highly, highly educated, uh, very big trust in the government that they're on the 90s. Uh, and um, you can go down as uh, you go to poorer countries. And unfortunately, the low-income countries have the highest degrees of hesitancy. That needs to change. So the people need to be convinced to get vaccinated. Plus, of course, you need to have vaccination centers and all of that. So I doubt that we will reach a level that because you will have everyone vaccinated uh, and uh, everyone uh, or the rest of the people diseased, we will control, let's say, within the next 10 years, uh, this, this virus. I think will continue to be present without being certain about it, right? But um, I believe it will continue to be, to be present because it's spread everywhere. And because both natural infection and vaccinations seems to produce not very durable 
immune protection. So it's going to be coming again and again, but we can have it perfectly controlled. That's my message, perfectly controlled. We can have, hopefully with an annual revaccination and with pills available and with our ability to stay constantly ahead of the virus, because we can produce very fast, we can make the, 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 the newest version, version 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 of the vaccine that will be more and more effective as the virus mutates, but we will have perfectly normal lives with just injection, which will do it maybe once a year. And the pill that in case we are um, sick will help us um, uh, make it like a flu-like rather than a, a life-threatening disease. Perfectly normal lives. That is what we are hoping to get back to. Albert, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you, thank you. Cheese will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod, SEC Chair Gary Gensler joins us for an exclusive interview on the new year's new priorities. We are going to take up again a project around driving greater competition and efficiency in the private fund space. We're going to see if we can propose some rules to drive more transparency and competition. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. (laughs) Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to (laughs) sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. Stand and Welcome back to Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. I want to get to our next big interview of the morning, and this one has implications for investors from Wall Street to Main Street. Joining us right now to talk about his regulation agenda and top priorities in the new year, SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Uh, Mr. Chairman, it's great to see you this morning. We are coming up on the anniversary, in fact, of uh, the GameStop saga. And uh, as you lay out your priorities this year, whether it be crypto, whether it be compensation plans, uh, climate and the like, what, what would be the number one thing you think you would uh, look back on if we had this conversation next year that you hope to accomplish? Well, Andrew and Becky, good to be with you. Um, I, I think about updating our markets for these 2020s. It's 2022. Technology is rapidly changing. So I think of... of in light of that, in light of the rapid change in technology, how do we ensure that our markets continue to be the most efficient in the market? That means the lowest cost, and that's the lowest cost for companies and individuals raising money in the market. And it means lower cost and thus better returns for investors. And, and having efficient markets in the middle for companies on the one hand and people on the other side in rapidly changing technology. Uh, that's what we're trying to, to accomplish. 
There's there's lots of pieces to that. Uh, let me start this morning with this. Uh, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today saying that the SEC pushing for more transparency from private companies. That has become a increasing feature, if you will, of the market or marketplace. And I'm curious if you could comment on that and what it means. Um, are, are you going to make it harder uh, to become a quote unquote accredited investor? Are you going to make more disclosures required of private companies? This becomes quite complicated because especially in this meme era, one of the things we're hearing uh, from folks is that they want more access to private companies. Well, um, I'm glad you asked that. Look, we've long had uh, both public companies and private companies. And we have said if you want to tap into the broad public, there's a basic bargain. Share information, disclose information that's important to that investor, and don't defraud them a disclosure and an anti-fraud. Don't lie, basically. That, that's, that's our basic bargain in the capital markets. Um, we are going to take up, again, a project around driving greater competition and efficiency in the private fund space. These are the funds that raise money. The total number is about $17 trillion. Raise money from pension funds, and also from wealthy individuals, but those pension funds are our money. It's individuals' money in pension funds, raise money, and then invest in the capital markets. And there's about 300 plus billion dollars a year in fees in these funds. And we're gonna see if we can propose some rules to drive more transparency and competition in that important part of our uh, investing capital markets. How do you feel about the increase in crowdfunding that's happening online, increasingly with various cryptocurrencies and coins. I'm thinking of the Constitution DOA project that happened earlier this year uh, to raise money to effectively bid on the Constitution. That group ultimately lost, and those uh, investors in it uh, ultimately lost at least some money. Well, uh, Andrew, you don't understand why I won't maybe comment on any one project, but you raise uh, 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 an interesting point. Crypto tokens, I will call them, are raising money from the public. And are they sharing with the public the same sets of disclosures that helps the public decide? And are they complying with our uh, sort of truth in advertising? Call it, call it the Securities Act anti-fraud provisions. And so uh, there's thousands of these projects, you named one, but there are thousands of projects basically trying to raise money from the public so that they can back an entrepreneurial idea. Well, that part's, that part's all right. That, in fact, is called innovation. But it's about bringing it into the securities laws. And unfortunately, way too many of these are trying to say, well, we're not a security. We're, we're just something else. And uh, uh, I think that the facts and circumstances suggest they're investment contracts, they're securities, and they should register. We had a lot of viewers sending questions, and one which relates to this issue is, can you explain your view of whether Ethereum is a security or not? I think you've actually suggested it isn't, but then why you believe that Ripple is a security? And I know there's an ongoing uh, lawsuit related to Ripple, but could you speak to the Ethereum issue? Andrew, uh, just to have a little fun with you, refer back to my earlier question. I'm not going to speak to any one matter, and so your listeners understand it. I'm the chair of a five-member commission that's also a civil law enforcement agency. 
And so we don't get involved in, in these types of public forums talking about any one uh, project, one uh, possible uh, circumstance and give legal advice over the, uh, the airways that way. Uh, but again, let me talk about more generically, the overall market. If you're raising money from the public and the public is an anticipation of profit based upon that promoter, sponsor, that group's efforts, that's within the securities laws. And it's within the securities laws because Congress painted with a broad brush. They wanted to protect you, the investing public, so that you have proper information or what's called full and fair information and protect you against fraud and scammers and the like. It's a simple, basic idea. You get to decide whether you want to invest in this security or that security. And if they call themselves a token, they're still probably possibly a security. Um, you get to decide, but there needs to be some basic disclosures and protection against lies and frauds. Uh, Chair Gensler, this sounds like a pretty important distinction and maybe a new way of thinking of these markets. This is kind of a new broad framework that would open the way for the SEC to maybe have a lot more say over a lot of arenas. And you start thinking about all the different ways investors, I mean, I'm just going back a year to where we were a year ago at this point, it was SPACs that were the huge rage that everybody was kind of interested in and the new way of taking a company public through these acquisition vehicles. And what you're talking about is making sure that you are looking at broad protections because there are so many retail investors that are maybe investing in a different way than they had in the past. Is that kind of what we're listening to here? This sounds like a fairly important statement. It is important. Part of it's new and part of it's old. It's, it's like that old saying about uh, uh, when one gets married. <laughs> so the new part is the new technology, whether it's crypto tokens, whether it's special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, these are something new. Uh, there are new ways to trade on the markets through brokerage apps and robo-advisors and like, that's what's new. But what's, what's kind of old and really important is this basic idea that if you raise money from the public and the public's thinking about a profit, you've got to give them basic disclosures and everything. And that goes back to the 1930s. It goes back to when the Supreme Court defined this test in 1946. Uh, that, that's the important public policy thing that we should not be neutral to. And then we, the technologies come along and they promote innovation, whether it's crypto, whether it's a new form of doing initial public offerings through these SPACs. Uh, that's, that's exciting. Our role at the SEC is to ensure that you, the public, still gets the basic protections. If I'm the industry, though, I hear that as you guys are laying the groundwork for getting involved in a lot of areas that you maybe hadn't been necessarily closely involved in in the past. This is the justification for why you are going to be overseeing all of these different arenas. Is that um, an unfair uh, I, Becky, I, I beg, I beg, I beg to just differ with that description. The SEC has been involved in these arenas since the 1930s. It's been updated. Our laws have been updated. Uh, often uh, and uh, staying within that framework, those public policy frameworks of the public gets to decide, but we try to have basic disclosures and protect the public. New technologies come along and sometimes industry is trying to 
uh, find uh, what they might think ways around these basic protections. They might be finding ways to, quote, arbitrage the system. Hey, Gary, I'm going to go rapid fire with you on on a handful of other issues uh, before we close out this segment. Uh, There's been a number of massive uh, insider trades. This is not insider trading per se, but uh, CEOs who've been selling. uh, You've been trying to update the 10B15 uh, program in terms of how they're able to do that. I wanted to ask you actually not about them so much as about Congress. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was recently asked whether members of Congress should be able to buy and sell individual stocks. She made the case that they should. And I don't know if we've ever asked you directly. Do you believe that Congress members should, given the information that they often are in possession of? And have you thought about any form of additional regulation from the SEC? Well, it's interesting, Andrew. There's a law that Congress passed uh, not that many years ago called the Stocks Act. And it was in yep. it, and it addressed this issue. It addressed this issue about the use of material non-public information. And sometimes that non-public information is inside a company, but that non-public information can also be inside of the de- deliberations and discussions uh, uh, in, in the legislative branch. And so, so Congress did address that, and we're the agency uh, uh, that has some oversight there, and, and we're gonna vigorously enforce that law, which is, uh, I'm sorry, it's maybe 10 years old. But you, you have no concerns about the credibility of Congress, the credibility of corporations that oftentimes are talking to members of Congress when it comes to these issues. I think that it, our whole system of finance comes down to one basic word, and it's called trust. And it comes back to Becky's earlier question and your current question. How do we get the best trust so companies can raise money efficiently and investors can, quote, trust the market? And protecting against insider trading, whether it's at a company or whether it's a government official, both are important to the basic trust. Talking about trust, uh, a lot of questions among American investors about whether they should be investing in Chinese companies at a time where we're seeing uh, massive shifts in the way the Chinese government is regulating their own companies. What's your, what, what's your thought about that and, and how the American public should think about it? So we've got about 250, 270 companies that are related to China in the U.S. capital markets. And We've got a couple of challenges right now. Uh, one is that uh, the, the Chinese officials for about 19 years have yet to sort of let the auditors of these companies, the accountants, uh, be inspected. And we have a law that was passed in 2002, Senator Paul Sorbanes and Mike Oxley, a bipartisan bill, it says the auditors, the accountants have to be open to inspection. 50 countries have allowed that. Uh, uh, China has not. Uh, and so that's one challenge. Another challenge is that, uh, as you said, some things are really changing rapidly in China in terms of some of their big tech and other companies. And uh, so what disclosures are the public getting? What disclosures are they getting, particularly since they're usually not buying? Again, listen, just just listen to this for a moment. You're usually not buying the company in China. You're buying a company in the Cayman Islands that doesn't even own the company in China. The company in the Cayman Islands often just has a contract to operate that 
company in China. So we at the SEC have a couple of projects. One is to enhance the disclosure around these so-called variable interest entities, the Cayman Island companies. And two, to implement a law Congress passed just a year ago that gave a, uh, a clock, a three-year clock to say, come into compliance with these inspect the auditor regimes. Chairman Gensler, um, we want to thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again. There's so many issues that we haven't got into. I want to talk to you about climate and dark pools and uh, meme stocks and so much more. I hope to uh, get to those the next time we have an opportunity to speak. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for all your uh, listeners. That's the show for today. Happy Monday. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.